Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Another week begins. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster here, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. Good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. Well, Boris Johnson then trying to stave off another Tory rebellion, Caroline, over his mm. lockdown plan for England. Wasn't quite as straightforward as you might have hoped. So he's reassuring backbenchers that he's planning to lift these new measures on December the 2nd. This is when they're currently due to be removed. But of course, no promises there. Yesterday, we had Michael Gove signalling that they may have to be extended if the virus can't be contained within that time. And that's got a lot of backbenchers quite ruffled over these plans and whether they should indeed go ahead. Yeah, and of course, the manner in which uh, this was delivered over the weekend, something of a kerfuffle. Johnson now trying to row back on the remarks by Gove on TV yesterday. Also, we heard from the Chancellor Rishi Sunak just a few hours ago, going even further, saying that the government expects that the rules uh, will bring infections down sufficiently. Uh, Sunak also made the point that the rules are, quote, time limited by law, and so they'll expire. And that means that they will require approval from MPs if they are then to be extended beyond the 2nd of December. Yep, so joining us now to discuss this is Martin Vickers. He's the Conservative MP for, for Cleethorpes. Comes at a really interesting time for Conservative backbenchers when they're all trying to work out their position on this and how to, to telegraph that. Martin, keen to get your thoughts, first of all, on this second lockdown. Is it something we should be doing? Are you going to vote for it when it comes into Parliament on Wednesday? Well, I think, I think there might be scope for some tweaking here and there of certain regulations. But broadly speaking, I do support uh, the Prime Minister's proposals. Uh, the uh, statistics and data that were presented at the press conference clearly indicate a worsening situation. And I've had that confirmed by my local uh, health officials in the constituency. So I will uh, certainly be supporting the uh, Prime Minister. Martin, what do you mean by tweaking? Which element are you talking about? Because the furlough scheme's been extended, non-essential shops uh, must close, but schools and educational settings remain open. What part of um, the, the, the rules, and we don't have the full details yet, but which bit do you want to see tweaked? 
Well, for example, I was involved in a, in a long briefing session with uh, Matt Hancock, the health secretary, yesterday. Uh, there was uh, over a hundred uh, backbenchers involved in the in the uh, virtual meeting, and there were, you know, some what in the great scheme of things might seem fairly small things like uh, being able to uh, uh, allow golf courses to open and allow people to exercise in the fresh air. I'd also like to see a little bit of relaxation, if at all possible to allow some public worship in our churches. You know, in the great scheme of things, these might seem fairly small, but I think they're important to individuals. Okay, but broadly, though, you are in support of this second lockdown. What about the the realism of getting the R level below one in 28 days? Do you think that can be achieved? Uh... I don't know is the honest answer and I think you know clearly if there's uh, uh, general acceptance of the rules and people obey them then I think evidence is that we will probably succeed but there are no guarantees and uh, it would be wrong to be to give false optimism mm, okay so, so sorry just to jump in there Martin would you vote to extend uh, if if we didn't get there within 28 days well, that will obviously depend on what the data and the infection rate and uh, all the, you know, the ability of the health service to cope with the demand. Uh, but, you know, if, if things were bad enough, of course, yes. But surely this is part of the government's problem now, that the strategy is so unclear. I mean, there have been so many U-turns. Um, it's kind of a bit staggering. First, the government very hard and Mr Johnson very hard against a lockdown then calling it a disaster when Labour suggested it now reversing course kind of um, very rapidly over the weekend and actually the numbers haven't changed that much in the sense that they were projected three weeks ago so what do you make of the government's strategy? Well, of course, it's easy to talk of U-turns, but when the facts change, the uh, policy should evolve. And just as the scientific uh, advice to ministers is uh, evolving, uh, so should the policies. And the hope was that the regional approach would pay. And I think it has certainly been beneficial to businesses. But, but Martin, the scientific evidence was pretty clear back in September when Sage, the government's advisers, said that, that some sort of a circuit breaker was needed then. We're now in November. Well, the government, advice, or the government decision, rather, following that uh, advice in September was to introduce the regional system and to tighten up in, in the areas of the strongest infection. And that, of course, was a balance between uh, the, uh, trying to limit the spread and also the demands of maintaining some sort of uh, uh, ticking over of the local economy. So I think it was worth a try, but clearly... Uh, the uh, evidence now and the advice that they're receiving is much more uh, strongly in favour of a temporary lockdown. And I think quite rightly, as, you know, as, as the advice evolves, so does the uh, policy. Yeah, so then should we return to the regional approach if it hasn't worked you know, in a month's time? Well, that will depend on A, the success of, uh, of the national lockdown and, and B, uh, how it is affecting different regions or whether at the moment the spread is pretty general across most of, uh, most of England. Um, I don't think you can forecast what will happen. The, the, the reality is that uh, everyone in the health service, the government, local communities, local authorities are, are all doing their best to battle against this infection. And we've got to recognise that uh, to some extent we're 
in the dark because we don't know how the infection will change and uh, the expert advice will change and therefore quite rightly governments will across uh, certainly across Europe are going to have to as we have been seen in recent uh, uh, weeks uh, they're going to have to clamp down even further. Uh, and what about the situation within within the Conservative Party? I mean, you've got names like Graham Brady, Steve Baker making a bit of noise. Things seem pretty dicey. And on top of that, you've got Nigel Farage now rebranding his party as, a, as an anti-lockdown party, Reform UK. <laughs> and we've, we've seen what he's been like as a, as a campaigner, mm. pretty proficient in the past. Being on the bandwagon. I mean, yes, there, there are quite rightly uh, critics and uh, people want to scrutinise uh, very... Uh, seriously the proposals they do have a damaging effect on local businesses and so on and people's lives and uh, and their freedoms and it's only right that parliament should uh, consider them in great detail and uh, certainly I, I you know I'm open to persuasion on certain of the amendments that will come forward but I think the broad approach from the government is such that we're going to have to go along with it and accept that that is perhaps the best approach at the moment. Martin, thank you so much for joining us. That's Martin Vickers, Conservative MP for Cleethorpes there in terms of the second lockdown in the UK, Seb. All right, let's have a look at some of the other stories that are making the news in the world of politics. Plenty else to talk about. Uh, test and trace, obviously a huge issue. Labour calling on the government to give frontline workers and vulnerable people living in virus hotspots tests every week. This is something that's been talked about for a little while. It hasn't come to fruition, but the party saying that NHS staff and people working in things like education, transport, retail, hospitality should have those rapid saliva screenings to identify people who are asymptomatic, who may have the virus and be capable of spreading it, but not necessarily showing the symptoms. Just another way to make sure that the country can carry on running, although as it seems, the temporary solution is, is, is not to carry on running the country and to bring it to something of a standstill. Yeah, absolutely. Because, uh, yes, we face new restrictions in England as of Thursday. Um, but over in Wales, the First Minister is expected to announce a new set of rules there uh, for when the country's 17-day lockdown ends. Remember, Wales got there first. Mark Drakeford says that the new framework will be easier for everybody to understand when it comes into force a week today. And he has also admitted that the series of local measures did not work well enough. So, you know, the regional and sort of piecemeal approach um, is simply not having the right impact. Yeah, and there's been a lot of talk, and we've discussed it on this programme, around the four nations coming together, uh, ditching the, uh, the the divided, I suppose, mm. um, way of dealing with this crisis for Christmas so that people can travel and all of those rules around movement are unified. And we saw the First Minister of Wales, Mark Drakeford, saying that Boris Johnson is going to organise some sort of a summit uh, to, quote-unquote, save Christmas. Uh, so we'll have to watch and see what comes out of that. And then Brexit, amongst everything else, it's still a thing. Brexit negotiators close to breaking this impasse over one of the biggest obstacles, and that's fishing. It's a sign that we could get a deal by the new mid-November deadline. So sources telling Bloomberg that the two sides are nearing a compromise that uh, would sort of lay out what access EU boats have to fishing waters in mm. the UK. But a lot of this also is around delaying making those key decisions exactly what the quotas are. So this could be something they've said, look, let's just chuck this make this decision later, move on and get a deal first. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, of course, one um, has to scratch one's head around whether 
any announcement on Brexit would actually come this week, given the US presidential election and so many other things happening with the pandemic. Uh, but let's see if and when that Brexit deal um, comes through. Um, also, just one for Londoners that I think is hugely important, and it's a story that we've been um, following on Bloomberg Radio. Transport for London saying that it has agreed with the government on emergency funding, and that's worth roughly £1.8 billion uh, because of the prolonged impact of the coronavirus, which has hurt revenues. London's mayor, Sadiq Khan, said in a statement, though, that the agreement with the government was, quote, not ideal, but I guess it's something. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now we've got to talk about the medical side. So this second national lockdown coming after government scientists warning the NHS risks being overwhelmed this winter. Total cases since the outbreak have now passed a million in the UK with more than 46,000 deaths, which is the highest number of deaths for any country in Europe. Yeah, well, for more on this, we're joined this morning uh, by Dr. Arthur Hosey, who is Director of the Life Sciences and Education course at the University of Staffordshire. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, Look, I know that you're um, in particular interested in molecular microbiology. And so that basically means that you're well placed to talk about the spread of the virus. How um, effective and efficient do you think this lockdown is going to be in actually combating the spread of the virus? Because the regional kind of measures have not worked well. No, the regional measures just didn't go far enough. They we're just um, still allowing far too many opportunities for the virus to um, spread through interactions, especially indoors. People were in social settings, perhaps in gyms, um, and we were given the opportunity for the virus to actually spread from one person to another. It's absolutely essential that we have this lockdown now. I wish we had this lockdown perhaps a couple of weeks ago when the numbers were still relatively low, but the numbers increasing, it's almost out of control. We need to, to bring forward these uh, measures to actually contain this virus and to stop people people interacting to give virus, the virus an opportunity to go from person to person. So the ambition now to uh, bring the R rate below one, and they want to do that in 28 days, the December, the second deadline to do that. Does that feel realistic to you? It does feel realistic, although ambitious. Um, I think if we do abide by the, the new regulations um, quickly and um, stringently, then it will bring things down. I'm disappointed that we have to wait for the Parliament process to run its course and um, we could not have brought these measures in immediately. Um, and the fact that we're delaying it until Thursday, or one minute past midnight on Thursday, is, is giving the virus an opportunity to still spread, especially as people in the UK seem to be going about a, about a bit of panic buying and perhaps... Um, um, that's going to bring further opportunities to actually um, for the virus to spread in busy environments. 
What do you make, um, Dr. Hosey, of this view that that I heard sort of said um, and embodied by the Conservative MP that we spoke to a few moments ago, Martin Vickers, this idea that actually we can't know, we don't know the spread of the virus and we didn't know a few weeks ago what was going to happen. Um, I mean, my reading of the science is is not that particularly and certainly Sage weren't saying that. Uh, I mean, what do you make of this idea that the government is saying we have new information so we're bringing in this this lockdown now because um, again we're relying on the science it's just simply not true I think some people did not want to make a decision and to, to go into lockdown but the evidence was very much there it was um, being pushed forward um, quite vocally um, at different meetings and it was pretty obvious to all that the virus was starting to spread and we needed to act now but there were p- political decisions that were made um, not to go down that road. There have been some um, dissenting voices that are trying to argue for alternative approaches that, quite frankly, just will not work. Um, the whole concept of herd immunity has raised its head again, and that's just completely against all scientific um, understanding. So we we have to accept that the decision was made for reasons other than scientific reasons. The evidence was there, um, but I don't think it's, it's prudent to get involved in some sort of political... Um, blame game just now. I think we need to make sure that the public understand that it's so important that we actually take these measures to preserve life because what we're talking about is not just livelihoods but we're talking about preserving life and perhaps longer term consequences of the virus. If we act now then we can protect the economy, we can protect lives and we can protect people's welfare. Well, I mean, a huge part of that and a huge part of everything working is compliance. And I wonder how concerned you are about that holding up, especially given this is the second time everyone's having to go through this. It's winter, it's cold, it's dreary. And of course, Christmas is around the corner and people are going to want to go out. People are going to want to be with loved ones in bigger groups. Is that going to have a significant impact on the success level of, of this lockdown? It could do, and I am concerned. Um, public health messaging has not been the government's strong point in the UK, and I think it's important to take people with us and explain the, the reasons why it's so important. This is to preserve life and uh, livelihood, and people are fatigued. People are entering a long winter, um, and it has been difficult this year. Um, there's no doubt about it. But I think we need to also give that hope that um, ultimately this lockdown can um, make a massive difference to the spread of the virus in the UK if we actually do comply fully. But we do need leadership. We need um, a clear messaging to come out from government. It would be good if um, we actually had a unified voice um, and the the measures that that are taken are clearly put forward by all parties um, uh, and all all wings within parties so that the the, um, society as a whole can actually see that this is actually something that we are all in together and we're all doing together. It's important that um, where there is mm-hmm. lack of compliance, that that is actually um, policed properly and that ultimately if people are flouting the, the regulations that perhaps they're first of all encouraged but then ultimately um, perhaps the law needs to be quite stringent on this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the message is harsh um, that, that you're giving, you know, that, that the consequences need to be much tougher. What do you think then in terms of the test and tracing system? The UK has failed to ramp this up sufficiently to deal with the pandemic so far. Germany, though, for example, which did do a, a good job of of tracing and tracking and tracing in the first wave of the pandemic, they have even um, you know, lost control, their contact traces have lost control effectively of the virus because of the volume of cases. So right now, do you think it is worth during this 28-day period of trying to build a, a really adequate test and tracing system? 
Yes, absolutely. And unfortunately, the government seemed to be focused upon targets and actually just increasing more and more tests, perhaps bringing in rapid tests. I think what we have to accept is that what, is, what we have failed to do in the UK is actually be able to trace tests. The um, length of time from testing to result has perhaps been too slow at times, but what we have failed to do is actually have a good tracing system. The government made a choice, again a, politi- a political choice, to perhaps go down a more commercial route rather than actually relying upon the public health officials at local government level. And I think that choice is actually um, borne fruit that is unfortunately quite unpalatable. Um, we need to get better at tracing um, people and actually encouraging people to isolate. Um, there is no incentive. Um, in fact, there's a lot of disincentives to isolate. And that's something that the government needs to address, that we need to make sure that where people are, quite frankly, living in poverty, that they um, actually have the financial ability to isolate because mm. people are tempted to, to go about their business and go to work because they quite frankly have to to survive. So if we're encouraging people to isolate, even if they're relatively asymptomatic, we need to make sure that we're incentivising them to do so because it's for the good of all, the good of society, and that's absolutely essential. So we need to use this time wisely, but the focus must be on getting the tracing better and actually encouraging the isolation, in addition to perhaps using better the tests in a more strategic way. Uh, and Dr. Hosey, in the interest of um, using times wisely, one of the arguments that's been made is that we should use this period to fix ICU capacity as a priority. Is that something that you would uh, you would recognise as being sensible? I think it is um, acceptable, but I think we need to try and make, uh, what we need to concentrate on doing is actually bringing the, the case numbers down rather than actually concentrating on treating people. What we need to do is making sure that um, we're trying to decrease the transmission in society. Yes, um, there are a number of cases that already, um, to use Jonathan Van Tam's phrase, baked in. We do have people that are going to get severely ill in the next couple of weeks. We will see deaths rising for the next two or three weeks. And and we need to make sure that we do have that capacity. But we have to look at the staffing. one of the arguments that people use in the UK is, well, why are universities opened? We have to be preparing the workforce for the future because ultimately the people that are involved in the testing, the nursing staff, etc., they are drained and they need, they need to know that there is support coming along the line. So we need to actually make sure that we continue the training of these staff that are going to be able to step in to actually give the, um, the people that are currently quite frankly drained and fatigued the ability to actually continue to, to persevere. Yeah, no, absolutely. But the other thing that is deeply frightening, of course, and I hear the health message, but there is also, you know, you mentioned it, livelihoods. The um, outgoing head of the uh, CBI, the Director General, um, Caroline Fairburn, talking about England's second lockdown will be truly devastating for business. I mean, the health issue is enormous, but the economic challenge is massive. Double dip recession looms if there is, you know, a really, really stringent lockdown. Yes, um, and there's no doubt about it that because of the response of the UK up until now, there there is that danger. Um, But the economy and health are linked, and if we get health right, then the economy will benefit. Um, It's not a case of... um, we can have one without the other. We need to make sure that the measures that we take now are going to help the economy to recover. Um, we did waste the summer. We did encourage, we made the wrong choice in actually opening up restaurants and pubs and encouraging people to go on holiday. That was a mistake. And unfortunately, businesses are now suffering from that. We took a short-term strategy when the longer-term picture needed to be looked at. Um, I'm hoping that what we will do now with this um, contained lockdown within the month of November will give businesses a whole 
hope that they can actually get business um, running during the month of December, which is so important, especially in the hospitality sector. Um, but we need to make sure that people are confident enough to actually go out and to spend their money. If people are, are afraid to actually go out into society because the pandemic is still running rife, then um, they're not going to spend money. So it's, it's wrong to say it's the lockdown that's the problem. The problem is that we are not contained the virus. And now if we do that, then the economy will recover. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.